Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website, at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 33 in our series for 2021, and today's date is Friday, September the 17th. First, I'll be talking to Joseph Vautuli, Credit Watch's CTO, connecting over 50,000 Australian businesses with sophisticated credit risk management tools to navigate the economic turbulence of 2021 by assessing the ability of their creditors to pay what they owe. And I'll be talking to IFM Investors economist Alex Joyner about the state of the economy. But now, let's talk to Joseph Fartouli. Well, Joseph, can you start by telling us a bit, little bit about Creditor Watch? Yes, thanks, um, Leon, for having me on. But basically, look, Credit Watch started a little over 10 years ago by two founders, Colin Porter and Patrick Coughlin. Colin's has since moved on, and Patrick is our current CEO, so we've had some longevity there. But... Basically, the way it originally started was that Colin and Patrick were in advertising and needed a way to be able to share information about um, businesses that were doing something called debt hopping, where that's the kind of practice of, you know, you, you engage with a small supplier, you work with them for maybe a little while, you go on to an invoice basis. But, you know, when that when that invoice comes due, you know, you, you kind of pick up and you go somewhere else without paying. So then... Um, you find that there's this network effect of the same um, same businesses that don't actually constantly not paying people, um, and it's generally the same offenders. This the idea was to kind of create a, a crowdsourcing model of sharing businesses that were kind of dubious in that sort of practice. Over the ten years, that's kind of grown into where we are today. Yes. Way to from a, these small businesses to these large enterprises, where we're able to provide deep dive um, insights into businesses and, and their practices. Well, what work has your team specifically been doing this year and how has this been helping Australian businesses navigate the current economic climate? Yeah, look, so COVID's obviously been a challenge globally in Australia, um, especially now. Queensland, a lot of the eastern seaboard, you know, with New South Wales, Victoria being closed. Queensland having to go through you know, a really tough recession with, with tourism extremely down um, at the moment. Uh, Western Australia is segregated as, as well. What we're finding is that it's changed the landscape quite a bit and it's really hurting certain industries more than others. Some have become actually a little bit more profitable. You can kind of think about the e-commerce websites and uh, any, anything else from to deal with you know, online ordering has, has really skyrocketed. But what businesses need in terms of inf- inf- uh, some sort of like 
live information is how are uh, particular industries performing and where's my risk in terms of um, my ledger in terms of how many businesses in those particular risky areas or industries do I need to start being wary of? So a bit more of a deep dive insight into how your business performing and, and region and industry risk factors. Um, we're also providing a lot of data through to our government um, through an economic index to able to give them insights into real-time uh, trade payment behavior um, of both individual businesses, but on top of that industries and, and geographic areas. Uh, so what approach have you taken to building creditors watches uh, development team or DV, DV team and uh, how are you balancing high performing culture with a supportive work life split, particularly light of the pandemic uh, induced working from home conditions where I assume you are now working from home? Yeah, so look, it's a challenging, it's a challenging time for everyone. I think as technology experts, we we don't shy away from um, the ability to be able to work remotely. However, it's really changed how people view remote working. I think the first few weeks of the the lockdown, it was there was a bit of a novelty about working from home and the the you know the time saving measures. But then it quickly became obvious when it was going to be a really permanent stance that. Are people's work-from-home environments set up the way they should be? Do you have a distraction-free environment? Do you have enough rooms with, you know, often a partner working from home as well, throwing working from home, uh, working uh, homeschooling as well? It's become an interesting challenge. So, look, flexibility has been what we've always been proud of. We provide a lot of autonomy to our developers and kind of give them goals and kind of we need to be a lot more flexible during these periods. Um, We're finding as well, you know, the the nine to five model doesn't work at the moment. Um, It's just unrealistic given everything happens. So, you know, people need things, need breaks throughout the day. They need to find um, a little bit more uh, autonomy in terms of how they manage their current workload and deliver that um, on that weekly workload each and every week. So giving them that autonomy and giving them that ability to kind of choose themselves when and how they work is a big part of it. Supporting them in terms of resources, whether that's working from home stand-up desks or, or, or chairs or anything has played a big part um, in that factor as well. We've also gone to, you know, above and beyond and given um, all of our developers an extra day off every month to kind of take a long weekend on each and every month to kind of let them recharge well during this pandemic period. Obviously, there's skill shortages we're seeing across Australia right now, particularly in the development space. Uh, how are you guys tackling that? And where do you find the developers from? That's actually a really interesting question because uh, developers themselves have, you know, do have a quite a bit of um, leeway now in terms of where and what they want to be working on. So if you don't provide those interesting interesting projects if you don't provide them with competitive competitive salaries and and a, and a work environment where you know they can feel comfortable with you know they can pick up and leave fairly easily right now especially if you're a developer that's a developer that's joined during that pandemic period you don't really have had any team bonding experience there's no real relationship to the business you're kind of just there to get a job done and it's just you know loyalty kind of throws it goes out the window in a scenario like that so we've been heavily focused on you know some online team bonding experiences some continual education um, to make sure that they do feel part of a a growing and loving network we obviously provide um, like everyone else we will care gifts um, and packages every every month to kind of make sure they know that we've been thought about and then on top of that I think you need to start looking remotely look developers have have changed their opinion in terms of how many days they'll come back to the office now that's going to be a permanent 
um, change. So I think now you can probably um, open your horizons a little bit. If you're traditionally a business and just in Sydney, have, start having a look up and down the, you know, the eastern seaboard or start looking into Perth or South Australia where there's still quite a bit of talent there to, to be found. If you're even keen, you know, looking a little bit across the shore over at New Zealand, there's a lot of talent over there um, as well. And, you know, a lot of the times, uh, you know, our uh, brothers and sisters in New Zealand are often thought of as just another territory, <laughs> part of Australia, really. Right. Okay. Okay. But I mean, the question is uh, how, and this, this change in the work environment where they'll come and go and be highly flexible, that's pretty permanent? Look, um, I think we'll have a remote working um, lifestyle fairly permanently. I wouldn't go back to, to complete remote. I think there needs to be a bit of bonding, but I think it's something that you need to discuss with your developers and, and understand what do they want and what, do, what does the business need? So I think we, even during when the lockdown sort of ended in, in March, April of this year and started returning back to work, we, we ended up at a two-day a week policy in the in the office and that worked really well we found that um there was plenty of bonding periods going on there was plenty of healthy discussions and but people had that flexibility as well to, to work from home right okay so what tech developments are you excited about both from within credit watch and across the wider development space so look for me it's it's definitely the the, the data analytics side machine learning ai it's it's gone gangbusters, I guess, in, in these last sort of uh, few years, mainly because the tech has become um, accessible to, to uh, where it was kind of originally with PhD and researchers for quite some time. It's, it's kind of dropped down so that your developers now have access to these tools and um, the modeling and the, the, the languages that are, have really developed over the last sort of um, three to five years, meaning that most people can start getting some very, um, at least basic information through the plat their platform to understand what is it in their data set. So they could either monetize, which is something that obviously we've got a lot of experience in, but um, a lot of businesses don't realize that there's probably some rich data. But even on top of that, if, they, if you're not looking to monetize that data, have a look at what, what trends you're finding, you know, whether you can find any great insights into your business that you can you know, seize some new opportunities in. So artificial intelligence will become absolutely critical. Oh, I think there's something like uh, 70% of CEOs globally think you know, AI is going is to play a big role in the next sort of five years um, in, in most industries, if not all. So I think, you know, even if you're not keen or don't really understand it, I think you should start dabbling in it. Um, it's definitely going to be a big part of um, the next sort of five to 10 years for, for every single business, regardless of whether you're in tech or not. And Joseph, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Leon, and um, yeah, great to speak to you. And now let's talk to IFM Investors Economist, Alex Joyner. Well, Alex, uh, Philip Lowe from the Reserve Bank says the economy is going to bounce back once we reach 80% vaccination rates, and he's basing that on the fact that people uh, last time uh, when they came out of detention came back and spent money furiously. However, they came back in a zero-COVID environment, that's not going to happen this time. Do you think the economy? Do you think he's right? Do you think the economy is going to bounce back the way he says? Look, I think I, I somewhat share the optimism that the Reserve Bank has in terms of a Q4 rebounding growth, and the reason I say that is more because there's so much pent up demand. So people in New South Wales and Victoria, in particular, 
have things to do, uh, want to do things, uh, want to spend on things. Uh, so there is that pent up demand story. And I think inevitably Q4 will be better. It's just how much better that can be. And as you say, you know, it's going to be an environment where, yes, we're going to have high vaccination rates, but we're also going to have high case numbers. And that's really the experience that we have had overseas. And in that environment, people tend to be a little bit more cautious as to what they can do and, and what they want to do, what they're comfortable doing. Uh, and governments will be like that as well. And one thing that's really noticeable when you look at all these mobility indicators and sort of activity indicators across countries is that even in the high vaccination rate countries, people haven't gone back to normal or haven't gone back to the normal way they do things. So activity is still uh, lower than it was heading into this crisis. And that's going to impact economic activity. And you know what we've really seen around the world is that we're approaching this narrative of, of sort of peak growth. There's been quite a few growth, economic growth downgrades um, just because countries haven't kept that momentum in the snapback. So in the Australian context, while I think Q4 will be, will be good and we should take some of that momentum into 2022, you know, I don't think it is going to be the sort of an unambiguously strong growth and trajectory out of this um, pandemic-induced recession that the Reserve Bank is envisaging. Right. Okay. Okay. So uh, what kind of growth are we looking at then for uh, 2022? Well, the, the numbers will be, will be strong uh, because of base effects largely. And, and, you know, we will be getting some momentum. So we will see some very strong numbers overall, but that's just to be expected because we've had huge restrictions. Now, the, the, as the uh, lockdowns have continued over the last few months, the downturn that we're seeing in Q3 has just got deeper and deeper and deeper. You know, people started that out as sort of, you know, it could be a minus one, minus two percent decrease in real GDP in the third quarter. Um, The Reserve Bank's downside case was a minus 2.5. We shot through that pretty quickly as the lockdowns went on. Now you're seeing forecasts of minus 4%. I've seen minus 5% in that sort of ballpark. And sort of perversely, as we continue to downgrade Q3, we continue to upgrade uh, 2022 uh, because of that base effect. So it's really not giving a strong indication year on year of the sorts of growth rates you know, that we can expect going forward just because of that bounce out of what is going to be extraordinarily weak growth in Q3. And you know, it, it has sort of tossed up this somewhat silly argument, I guess, around are we in recession or not, you know, because... Happily enough, the the June quarter GDP data came in a little bit better than expected. And if we're expecting a Q4 rebound, we won't get a technical recession. That is two consecutive quarters of negative growth. But no one would suggest that Victoria and New South Wales in particular are not in recession. Sort of the duration argument around what a recession is, is a bit silly in the context of what is going to be a a historic sort of fall in in GDP of, you know, minus four, minus 5%. Where we haven't seen it come through yet is in in some of the labour force numbers, but I think that's only a matter of time uh, as to how high we see the unemployment rate go uh, in the next couple of months. Well, the issue with unemployment numbers is, uh, I mean, a lot of the people who aren't working because of the lockdowns are still classified as being employed. And if you add those, that would actually increase the unemployment rate quite substantially. That's right. So 
the unemployment rate in the latest figures in July came in a lot better than expected. You know, the unemployment rate actually went down the official unemployment rate as the ABS uh, notes the unemployment rate. So it was at 4.6%. But that was really masking uh, what was actually happening in the data. And, and as you say, if you work zero hours, there, but you keep your job, you are still employed, but you're not working, if you get what I mean. And so there's an obvious income impact there. If you add those people to the unemployment rate in uh, even July, you go from 46 to 6% in terms of the people that are effectively unemployed as you know, the, the impact on their incomes, uh, for example, is equivalent to being unemployed. That will continue to rise uh, in the August and September numbers as people have had to uh, be out of the workforce. One of the, the interesting dynamics that this has thrown up and we've only got these data to, to the second quarter, is that there is now a record number of people that have multiple jobs. Uh, and that seems to be a pretty reasonable response here because uh, you, if you get zero hours in one job, then you might go and take another job. So uh, in the numbers to the June quarter, you know we've got over 800,000 people having multiple jobs. So maybe two jobs, but you know, even three or four jobs uh, just to compensate for what's happening in the labour market in terms of their perhaps main or preferred job. That's historically high. It's around about 6.6% uh, of the labour market. So it's a, so it's a big number. Um, and this is just a purely a consequence of, of the lockdowns and, and how people are trying to keep their income levels or the income coming in so they can you know, pay their bills and pay their mortgage. Uh, the other issue too is... Uh the uh, closed borders internationally and we're not going to get migrants coming in and that's always been a big driver of economic growth and that's not going to happen for quite some time. That's certainly true it's a double-edged sword uh, so we don't have the population growth driving uh, GDP so we just don't have a bigger economy um, that's not really a good way to grow but it certainly was uh, the way the Australian economy was growing uh, leading up to the pandemic, you know, we had this sort of 1.4, 1.5% year-on-year population growth rate, which was making our economy bigger just by the virtue of having more people in it. Now, it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a lazy way to grow in in an economist's eyes. You know, productivity was quite poor uh, and these sorts of things. But you know, we had relied on it, and we we don't rely on it now. The other aspect of that, obviously, is the education and tourism side of things where you know that that has been cut off as a source of growth now services as as an export was really going uh very strongly leading into the pandemic and that's that's for naught uh at the moment with borders closed now that will come back gradually uh as borders reopen international borders uh, reopen but there's also been a flip side to this on the labor market you know one of the reasons why and it's it's, it's often overlooked one of the reasons why we have been able to make so much progress on the labour market and getting the unemployment rate down after the worst of the sort of the, the lockdowns in 2020 is that we haven't had that labour supply uh, coming in. So we haven't had to have all these people getting jobs. And I'm not talking just about skilled migration here. I'm talking about uh, temporary migrants that come to Australia and work in casual jobs and these sorts of things. And it's interesting, again, in the labor account data it has shown the impact of what having a whole bunch of people in australia temporarily does to the labor market so what we can see from those data 
is that around about 200,000 non-residents have gone home uh, since the start of the pandemic. And that has left 200,000 roughly free jobs available uh, in the Australian labour market. And I should note here, and it gets a little bit technical and sort of economics detail here. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honouring highly requested new colours for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That the labour account data shows employment that includes non-residents. The labour force data that we all focus on as economists month to month doesn't include non-residents. So we have 200,000 non-residents leaving uh, as of the June quarter, and we have those jobs being taken by residents. So that's why you see employment measured in the labour account data lower than it was uh, at the start of the pandemic, but employment still in the labour force data higher than you saw at the start of the pandemic. So it's a very much a substitution effect here. And this is why we're seeing all the anecdotes out there of labor shortages and we can't get people to work and you know people in cafes and people in you know even like agriculture fruit picking these sorts of things that we always tend to rely on the overseas temporary workforce those people aren't there and that's where we're sort of seeing some of the wages pressures and that's why we're seeing things that we haven't seen before in vacancies numbers and ANZ job ads and seek job ads that there's a very high level of vacancies out there and jobs out there just because these people that used to work in our economy just aren't there anymore because they've gone home because of the pandemic. Given that we're going to have a gradual increase in immigration, what impact do you expect that will have on the economy? Well, clearly, uh, the way things are going, you know, the borders, the international borders will open up uh, at a gradual pace, likely to select countries that have certain vaccination rates and all these sorts of things. I don't think there's a, you know, we haven't really got a clear roadmap, at least in Victoria, of, of coming out of the pandemic here with, you know, borders going to New South Wales and South Australia, let alone an international plan. We haven't got that as yet. Hopefully there's one forthcoming. But I think it will be a very slow march back to the levels of net overseas migration that we have been used to in the past. Now, uh, you know, the last budget did have some sort of a bit of a stab, I guess, at at net overseas migration numbers and had that coming back to sort of the the pre-pandemic levels of 300,000 people coming in. It's very difficult to envisage that coming back very quickly as we open up. Because of that, I think selective and and very careful reopening of the the international borders. And that's that's going to weigh on uh, economic growth, as, as I've already noted. 
but it will also keep the labor market uh, quite tight because we just won't have that labor supply coming in at a rate that we did uh, pre-pandemic. And that was one of the key reasons Australia couldn't get its unemployment rate as low as other countries uh, before the pandemic was just we had this level of labor supply coming in that was just we couldn't absorb it all. Uh, and get the unemployment rate to where we wanted it to get the wages up and these sorts of things. So we will have that opportunity as the borders open up very slowly to continue to do that. And I think that's really driving some of the Reserve Bank's policy here is that it's trying to sort of make hay while the sun shines, you know, really keep policy extraordinarily accommodative, which it is, for an extended period of time to really drive that unemployment rate lower, allow the economy to generate lots and lots of jobs But then on the labour supply side, we're not having to create those jobs. So the labour market should tighten up quite well sort of into that 2022, uh, early 2023 period when the borders are unlikely to be fully open. Uh, So all up, you would say, while the economy is going to bounce back its sorts, uh, it's not going to be a big bounce back. It's going to be quite moderate. Well, that's right. And look, one of the things that I've sort of been talking about for a long time has been... Yes, the economy will no doubt recover. That, that, that will happen. We will reach the same level of output as we had before the pandemic. Uh, you know, we already did that. We're going to sort of step back from that and, and return to it. You know, it's a little bit more questionable around how aggressively and how we can keep the unemployment rate very, very low. You know, we need to get that unemployment rate back to, well, down to 4% uh, or, or thereabouts to get the wage growth that we, we would like to see. But how are we going to sustain all this? The economy, as I said, will no doubt recover, but will it be better is, I think, the question. And and that is a very open question. I don't see in the Australian context or in the international context, really, what uh, what policymakers have done to make economies more robust, make them better and more productive places where businesses want to invest and employ. You know, that was the thing that we were talking about before the pandemic, the over-reliance on monetary policy and, you know, fiscal makers and uh, fiscal policy makers and governments really needed to come to the fore in driving economic growth. You know, that is still very much needed after the pandemic. You know, if, if anything, uh, you know, we're coming out of uh, the pandemic with economies that are weaker. You know, we've got exhausted monetary policy. We're no doubt going to have higher debt levels in the household space and obviously in the government space. But we haven't had these policies that we would like to see around productivity growth and reforms, you know, tax reforms and all these sorts of things that economists sort of talk about till they're blue in the face because they, they never really get done and they're difficult to do. So it's, the governments are trying to focus on the recovery from the pandemic. So you sort of forgive them for that. But certainly we need to have an agenda going forward over the medium term to to try and make our economy better, more resilient to these things and and not as reliant as we have been on on things like population growth, but also iron ore, obviously, obviously, you know, that has been the one thing that has differentiated the Australian economy through this and and will set us up uh, well, hopefully uh, going forward is, is that, you know, that reliance on the resources sector, you know, hopefully we can turn that into something a little bit better. Uh, than than we have previously, where we just sort of gave tax cuts and these sorts of things. Hopefully we can translate these sorts of things into sort of more meaningful uh, reforms in the economy. Well, Alex, that's all fascinating. And uh, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure, Liam. So what's happening in the news? 
Well, September, the most dangerous month of the year on the share market, is looking more dangerous than usual, with a burst of warnings on an impending correction. Australian blue chips have stumbled from their record highs in August, threatening to end an 11-month run of gains despite fresh optimism on the country's vaccine rollout, as investors prepare for a lull in profit growth. The S&P ASX 200 has fallen nearly 2% since the start of the month, and is down 3% from a peak a month ago, placing the benchmark on track for its first monthly loss since September last year. As independent economist Jonathan Payne says in his most recent report, if the market is about to experience its first meaningful correction of 2021, now is a pretty good time for it to happen. Why now? Analyst concerns range from the reappearance of inflation to extended COVID-related interruptions to suggestions that profit recovery has now peaked. More pressing is a prospect of a taper tantrum on global markets as central banks try to wind back their money printing programs. As concerns mount, the unbroken chain of good news for shared investors looks ever more fragile. And the Reserve Bank would face its first independent review in 40 years under a proposal from the OECD, which says it is time to address the central bank's failure to meet key economic targets in recent years and deal with long-term risks posed by the pandemic. In a broad-ranging report into the state of the Australian economy that also called for substantial tax reform and more explicit budget repair commitments from the federal government, the Paris-based Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development said a review of the RBA should cover its charter and board makeup. The RBA sets official rates and attempts to keep inflation between 2 and 3% as part of its charter to deliver full employment while maximising the nation's prosperity. It has missed its inflation target since 2015. Shadow Treasurer Jim Chalmers said at the time the RBA was not beyond criticism, backing a review of the bank, monetary policy and its interaction with fiscal policy. The same series also showed concerns about the bank's internal structures, including its board, which is appointed by the Treasurer of the day. During a period when it consistently overestimated the strength of wages growth, there was no union representative on the board. Every 18 months, the OECD conducts a formal review of member countries, making recommendations across a range of economic policies. Its latest report is the first to propose a review of the RBA and its operation. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg is open to an independent review of the Reserve Bank of Australia, following calls from the OECD for a probe into why the bank has consistently failed to meet its economic targets. Such a review would include looking at the key lessons from the COVID-19 crisis, implications for interest rates being stuck at historic lows of 0.1%, the bank's inflation target and its board structure and transparency. And the Morrison government is being urged by the OECD to reduce its reliance on income taxes, overhaul the GST, lower tax concession and develop a clear plan to reduce debt coming out of the coronavirus pandemic. The Australian economy faced challenges before COVID-19 and structural reform is needed to rein in the budget and boost business dynamism and productivity, according to the Club of Wealthy Economists, now headed by former finance minister Matthias Cormann. The OECD recommended the government reduce its reliance on income taxes, increase the rate and broaden the base of the GST, lower retirement tax concessions and capital gains discounts and develop a clear medium-term plan for the budget with targets based on timeframes or conditional on measurable outcomes. States and territories also need to get on with major reform, to scrap stamp duty and move to broad-based land taxes, overhaul land use regulations and progress legislating mutual recognition of occupational licensing. And tens of millions of annual visitors to Crown and every worker will have to be fully vaccinated to access the mega-attraction under a bold plan. The hospitality giant has written to all its 20,000 employees across Australia, informing them that discussions will begin immediately regarding the introduction of mandatory vaccinations for staff and visitors. The no-jab-no-entry policy would apply to all its facilities, including Crown Melbourne's gaming floors, hotels, shops, restaurants, cinemas, nightclubs and amusement centres. 
Crown Resorts and Crown Melbourne Chief Executive Steve McCann said, our starting point will be anyone who works or visits our facilities will need to be vaccinated across the board. And more than one million people could be vaccinated at work after Australia's businesses were given the green light to join in the rollout and turn offices, warehouses and construction sites, factory floors and mines into vaccination centres. Following a sustained push by the banks, airlines, supermarkets and others to join the vaccine push to reopen the economy and keep it open, business leaders were given the go-ahead during a briefing on Monday with rollout coordinator General John Fruin. The plan, made possible by a supply surge of 36 million Pfizer and Moderna mRNA vaccines over this and the next three months, will involve a business enlisting an accredited vaccine provider, which would then send nurses or other medical personnel to the business to vaccinate staff, much in the same way businesses arrange annual flu shots for workers. The program is expected to be underway by the beginning of October, because due process stipulates that providers must first seek accreditation to administer COVID-19 vaccines at workplaces through the Commonwealth tender process. The government will pay the provider a fixed price for each vaccine administered, meaning there will be no cost to the worker or the business. Businesses cannot charge workers for their jabs. The government estimates between 1 million and 1.7 million people could be vaccinated at their workplace through the business program. It will augment the doses being administered through state government vaccination hubs and the Commonwealth-controlled network of GPs and pharmacies. The Business Council of Australia, which has been working on the program for several months, said enlisting the nation's largest employers was a no-brainer. And the US audit watchdog has fined KPMG Australia US $450,000 at 615000 Aussie over widespread cheating on tests designed to ensure partners and staff act with integrity and have the relevant skills for their work. More than 1,100 KPMG partners and staff were involved in improper answer sharing when taking training tests, where they either received or shared answers between at least 2016 to early 2020 according to a decision published overnight by the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, or PCAOB. The board has forced two partners to retire over the cheating, while another 16 partners received formal warnings and had their income docked by tens of thousands of dollars. Another 30 KPMG staff members received warnings and had their pay docked, while another 1,131 staff members, or about 12% of the firm's total personnel, received verbal or written cautions for either sharing or receiving exam answers. A women's progress to financial equality with men suffered a setback in the June quarter as COVID shock factors put the brakes on the female-led recovery at the start of 2021, the latest Financing Women's Index, or FWX, June quarter report shows. While the FWX rose by 0.9% to 72.2 points in the June quarter, the pace of progress is slower than the 1.06% recorded in the March quarter 2021. The June quarter result was helped by a fresh record high in the number of women occupying ASX 200 board positions to 33.5% and a narrowing of the gender gap in the underemployment rate. However, digging deeper into the closing of the gender gap in the underemployment rate, it appears less affected by actual progress for women and instead reflects more women opting out of work. In the March quarter of 2021, the Australian economy was picking up, helped by female-led employment recovery in sectors most hit by the pandemic such as retail, trade and food and accommodation services. However, the recovery started to come off the boil in June, and the number of monthly hours worked by females fell by 2.3%, almost five times that seen among males, in a contrasting to a 4.6% gain for women in the March quarter. The gender pay gap also widened to 14.2% from 13.4%, reflecting the biggest dollar difference, with $261 between men and women's full-time weekly wages since 2016. It will take at least 21 years for parity to be achieved in the gender pay gap, at least 31 in employment, 16 years in the underemployment rate, and 7 years for the 50-50 gender diversity to be achieved on the ASX 200 boards. 
Overall, the most significant obstacle relates to unpaid work. It will take 101 years before equality is achieved in this area and before we can say equality has been achieved across all areas of financial inequality measured in the FWX. And Reserve Bank of Australia Governor Philip Lowe has dismissed suggestions interest rates could rise next year, insisting the cash rate will be on hold until 2024. In a keynote address to the Unica Foundation on Tuesday, Dr Lowe said interest rates will be on hold for the record low of 0.1% for at least the next three years. And a measure of Australian business conditions showed a welcome improvement in August as sales and profits weather coronavirus lockdowns in parts of the country, offering hope of a speedy recovery once restrictions ease. Tuesday's survey from the National Australia Bank showed its index of business conditions rose four points to 14 in August, recovering part of July's sharp 14-point drop. The survey's measure of confidence edged up two points to minus five after diving in July as lockdowns spread from Sydney to Melbourne and Canberra. Importantly, the conditions index remained well above the long-run average and businesses were faring much better than during the first round of lockdowns last year. And multiple US television networks have approached national broadcasts of the ABC about buying the rights to broadcast two Four Corners episodes that looked at Fox News and its role in the 2020 general election. The ABC has spoken to several news outlets about a licence to exclusively air the program in the US. CNN, which recently interviewed reporter Sarah Ferguson, was one of the networks interested in acquiring the program, but no deal was finalised. A program detailing Fox News' coverage of the general election is likely to be of interest to US television viewers, who until now have been unable to watch the program. Fox News is America's most popular cable news network, known for its conservative commentators including Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity. The licensing of the program by any US television network is likely to frustrate Fox News media and escalate tensions between it and the ABC. Fox News had formalised a complaint about the two-part program and had written to ABC chair Ida Buttrose and managing director David Anderson, demanding an external inquiry be conducted. Fox Corporation, which runs a cable TV channel Fox News, is facing several lawsuits in the US over its coverage of the election. And some of Australia's most well-known digital publications are using funding from tech giants Google and Facebook to form their first industry body. Crikey Publisher, Private Media, Mamma Mia, The Squeeze and Junkie Media are among 20 publishers that are coming together to form what will be known as a Digital Publishers Alliance. The body will be led by Junkie's co-founder, Tim Duggan, and will aim to boost visibility with advertisers and give the publications a stronger voice on key industry issues. Other members of the DPA include Future Women, Broadsheet Media, Lad Bible Group, and Solstice Media, publisher of the New Daily, who will pay annual membership fees. Google News Initiatives has already provided funding, while the Facebook Journalism Project is finalising its contribution. Mr Duggan assured the tech giants will have no say over the directive of the industry body and its priorities. At Sydney Airport will open its books to a group of suitors after they sweetened their takeover offer to $23.6 billion. Bidders led by IFM investors increased their offer to $8.75 a share from $8.45, the airport said on Monday. It plans to recommend shareholders accept the bid if, following due diligence, the consortium turns it into a binding offer and the conditions are acceptable. After being hammered by coronavirus restrictions that decimated travel, Sydney Airport is finally relenting after rejecting two previous bids from the consortium. The airport had previously argued that vaccination rollouts around the world would allow travel to resume, but the outlook has darkened since the suitors first approach in July, and Sydney Airport's largest shareholders last month publicly agitated for negotiations for a sale to start. While Qantas Airways is looking to restart international services in mid-December, much of Australia has been stuck in lockdown for weeks as authorities struggle to contain a breakout of the Delta variant. 
less delaying in aviation recovery and increasing the pressure on Australia's biggest travel hub. And a report from the Australian Institute Centre for Future Work shows 40,000 tertiary education jobs, one in five positions, have been lost in the 12 months to May 2021. The report estimates 35,000 of job losses were at public universities, with a significant number of TAFE staff also losing work. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Drew Colley, Vice President of Growth and Strategy at Jeezy Go, Australia's first digital supermarket. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest unemployment figures. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.